Hey guys, and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. I've got a crazily cool, super talented marketer on the show this week. She is Stephanie Cox, the VP of Marketing and Sales over at Lumivate. Incredibly experienced, leads the whole sales marketing team and has a ton of incredible success stories under her belt. She's also a great storyteller and tells lots of stories to back up the methods that she teaches today in this podcast. So we dive really deep into the playbook for account-based marketing. Stephanie shares all the details for personalizing your marketing, going after your ideal customer, getting your team on board, uh, and just a ton of things that are really instantly implementable and testable in your own team. So I hope you enjoy. I'm not gonna take up any more of your time with this little intro. Please, 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 if you get some value out of this podcast, leave me a review and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week's. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. Your job right now in marketing seems so interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? And my current role is I like to do lots of different things. I like to be constantly challenged. So I've always been seeking out these opportunities to do something I've never done before. And right now at Lumivate, we're a platform for building mobile apps for marketers without any code. But, you know, in my role there, I oversee sales, marketing, and product management and customer success and support. So really overseeing, you know, everything that touches the customer, which is a really cool opportunity because not a lot of companies really are architected that way where you have one kind of single person that leads the overall strategy for the customer experience and i think it's what helps create a really consistent and cohesive experience from the first time they ever hear about you and your marketing efforts to their sales calls to what they experience when they've been a customer for many years and the product that they're using so that is kind of my background and what i'm up to now That must actually be intense. I mean, I see the thread between those departments and those roles, but how do you keep up to date with all that work? Yeah, so I think part of that is just personality a little bit. I tend to be an overachiever by nature, type A personality. I've always wanted to do, I like, I would say I like a healthy level of stress. So that's just how I've operated. So I like to have a lot more than probably the average person. And really what I try and do is, especially when I started taking over all the different departments. So I started just leading marketing when I came on to Limited and then quickly added, you know, sales and then product and then success and support. And really what I try and do is find, you know, ideally, who is my go-to for that area? So whether or not they are necessarily the leader of that team or if those people maybe in that group all directly report to me, which which happens in some cases, but who's the person that I can rely on? Who's the person that I can give things to and not worry about them? So that's one of the things that I really try and look for, not just at Limovate, but in any company where I've been and I manage a team, is sometimes you have opportunities where you know, you're a leader who you know has managers underneath them who manage other people and other times where where you might have more direct reports, but there always should be, you know, a couple of people that you can delegate to that you really truly trust Mm -hmm. and that you can say, Hey, can you handle this and not worry about it one more time because you know, they have it covered. So I really look to find people like that. And a lot of times you can find them in really young talent, really helping them see the opportunity and how talented they are and the growth potential that they can do. So there's even young people on my team that are only a couple of years out of school that I know if I give something to, I don't have to think about it again. I mean, that's exactly what you want in a boss, I suppose, like someone who's going to give you that opportunity to step up, to trust you and to give you the opportunity to show that you can be trusted. So like just before we were talking a bit about one of your first bosses, who was a a female leader, how important would you say that was to your sort of growth uh, at that point? It was, it really fundamentally taught me everything I wanted and needed to know about leadership. And I think the reason why is by nature, she was a servant leader, right? She was always focused 
you know, on the team, what was best for the team, how to help all of us, what was best for the company and everything that she did, which hugely influenced how I think about leadership. But then I also think the other thing was, you know, I worked most of my career in tech, which is a predominantly male dominated industry. And to see other women at high levels being very successful and doing it in a way that is similar to my personality, right? I am very direct, but I'm also probably, me as the Midwest nature in me, but I'm also probably one of the, the kindest and most compassionate, empathetic people you'll meet as well. And so one of the things that I, you know, finding someone that can balance both of that was really showed me that, you know, as a woman in tech, you can be successful, you can lead, you can do amazing things, but you also can be who you are. And if who you are, you know, at nature is a very like giving person, those people can be successful. So it really, I think just fundamentally shaped how I lead my team, how I think about managing, how I think about hiring and the amount of time and energy that I put into helping my team grow, right? Some managers, when someone on your team leaves, they see that as, you know, oh no, this is so horrible. And I'm never surprised when someone's my team. And it's funny because people will tell me like your team talks to you about this. I'm like, yeah, because I, I want what's best for them. Ideally that's, you know, at the company we're at together, but sometimes it's not because they're ready to grow faster than I can have them grow there because there's not that opportunity or because they've learned all the things that they can learn in that role at that company. And it's time for them to go learn something different. So I'm you know, I have those conversations with my team and, you know, I'm never surprised by it, you know, always sad to lose them and the impact, but always super happy for what's next for them. And I think, you know, my first boss, that's how she was. And that really fundamentally has made me who I am today. That's so great. And I'm kind of wishing that this podcast was about leadership right now. Um, so just to bring it back to the marketing side, you have such a good overview of the whole customer journey, which I think is such a unique position. But to go into the topic of today's conversation, which is account-based marketing, ABM. Yeah, so how important is ABM for you as a strategy at Lumivate right now? Yeah, so it, you know, I think about ABM and to me, it's good B2B marketing. So if you've been doing B2B marketing right, which I believe I have been for my entire career of over 15 years, I've been doing this concept. It just didn't have a name. Right. And I think what happened a couple of years ago is that this whole concept of identifying your target accounts, finding the right people within those and, you know, reaching out to them directly and being very personalized. That is what good BB, good B2B marketing has always been about. And now we just happen to call it account based. So I've always structured everything I do around, you know, who is our ideal customer profile? How do we find those people? How do we talk to them and not try and just like batch and blast to everyone that has a pulse? And so, you know, when I came into Lumivate, that was one of the first things that I implemented there because it's, it really is how you should market to others. So we market specifically to other businesses. We happen to sell to marketers, which marketing to marketers is, is one of the best jobs in the entire world, getting to do that and having that privilege. So it's really, you know, everything we do is ABM. Is that because they appreciate good marketing? basically. It is. And because it really challenges you to take your game to the next level. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is by nature, a lot of really good marketers are really cynical because we've all been burned by technology that claims to do things that it doesn't do, or, you know, campaigns that we've launched that we thought would be super successes that fail and other things that we didn't expect to work, work like miraculously. So by nature, we're just, we tend to be a little bit more judgmental about things that we see, advertisements, emails, outreaches, you name it. And so when you can do something really creative and really stand out to another marketer who says, I just took this, I, I just took what you sent me and sent it to my entire team because I don't know why we're not doing stuff like this. Mm -hmm. That to me is like the best job in the world. Definitely. 
That's good because now I can ask you about all of the creative things you've done. Where, where do you start with account-based marketing? Where would you start? And then we can go into examples from each step. Yeah. So no matter where I'm at, it's really about who we want to talk to. Right. And so at Lumivate for us, we can really, our platform can be used for any industry and for really any use case, which makes it really great and also really challenging. Right. So for us, we focus more on industries. So we'll get started with like an industry campaign. So as an example, we might target uh, major league sporting teams. And, you know, with that, we're going to focus on, okay, who are the big teams there? That's a really easy list to develop. And then, you know, who are the people within those teams that we believe would purchase from us? And vice versa, if we're doing something in the consumer packaged goods space, we're going to want to do the same type of thing. Okay, so who are all of the big companies in there? And we tend to specifically sell to mid-market enterprise brands. And, okay, who are those? And then what are the people within those organizations? So what are, you know, obviously the titles that make sense. But then also we're doing a ton of research, not just on the company because I don't want to just know what's their sales, how many employees, all that stuff. I want to know what have they done in native mobile? What technology are they using on their website today? Because we're trying to figure out what their digital maturity level is because we know we sell a very forward-thinking technology. And so if you're not pretty mature on your overall digital strategy, you're likely not going to be a good fit for us right now. That's okay. So we, we really look at that from a company level. And then the second thing we do is looking at it from a person. So I don't want to just know about you, like Ben, like your title, where you went to school, what your job is. I want to know like what you talk about on Twitter. I want to know who your favorite sports teams are. I want to know, you know, if you ever spoke someplace, we're going to watch and listen to those recordings because we want to know everything about you. And that really helps us, one, be really good in our outreach and be highly personalized. But two, also find people that are change agents, because what we're really looking for is people that like to take risks and that like to make a change in their organization. So if you're not a risk taker and you're not update, you know, as an example, you don't update your LinkedIn very well, you're not posting on social media, you're not really going to conferences and you've kind of the same role for a long time, you're probably not the person we're going to outreach to because chances are we're going to be way too new and shiny for you. We're in a market that's relatively new, using a technology that's only four years old, right? So there's a lot of things that might seem risk, like a risk to you. Whereas if you're someone that's like at conferences speaking, constantly trying out new technologies, talking about marketing every day on social, you're more likely to find what we're doing really compelling. So that's kind of the first step. Do you go for multiple people within the same company or do you just stick to the budget holder? Yeah, a lot of times we go for multiple people in one company, especially in enterprise organizations, because titles are a really funny thing. In enterprise organizations, you can get a VP of marketing, you could have four or five of them, and they all have very niche responsibilities that there's no way of knowing until you kind of really talk to them. So a lot of times we will go after multiple people. And to your point around, you know, they may not be the budget holder. That's very true. And we find that there are people that are champions of us within large organizations that are customers, where they are helping us get in the door to all these other different business units. And they're really helping us architect our strategy, but they're not the ones actually paying for it. So there's a lot of that that happens. Interesting, that makes sense. So how do you manage a kind of conflict of interest when you're contacting multiple people? Say they kind of talk to each other about your contact and your outreach. We do think about that a lot. And I think that's part of the reason why we're so personalized and why I do so much research up front. So a lot of times what we'll do when we first outreach to someone, I always call like our first outreach, our throwaway, which I know some people hate to hear me say, but it's so true. No one responds your first voicemail, your first email, right? No one. It has to, you have to have been like needle in the haystack looking for something the moment that email came in, right? Mm -hmm. So 
that likely doesn't happen. So we, we always do kind of like a standard brand awareness type of piece in our first outreach. And a lot of times, about six to eight weeks before we've ever outreached to you, we are running ads targeting your company on LinkedIn specifically and people with those titles, just so you've seen us. I'm not trying to get you to convert to a demo or anything crazy. I just want you to have seen my brand name. So when I outreach to you, I'm not net new. I feel like someone that you've seen before. So really our personalization starts with our second and that is video. So we love video. I am, I cannot say enough great things about if you do video correctly. And I don't mean like just creating videos and playing them out on social media. I'm talking about truly personalized videos to prospects when you're outreaching to them, you're going to see such dramatic differences in the number of meetings you're able to book. So if I reached out to, let's say five people at your company, I'm going to send five videos and every single video is hundred percent personalized to them. So even if they forward them around, what I said to you is not going to be what I said to, said to another one of your colleagues. And that's what makes it different because then you get people, if they do talk, they're like, how did you do it? Like, this is really cool. How did you do this? One, they typically aren't getting personalized videos at all themselves now. Mm-hmm. So that stands out. We always do some sort of like fun sign or, you know, I've had SDRs that when we're reaching out to soccer teams, they're bouncing soccer balls on their knee while they're trying to, you know, while they're recording a personalized video or, you know, yeah, just like different stuff, right? So I have a question here about how much time you spend on this. Like I can see, like I can imagine the first issue, a lot of people are going to say, well, this is too high risk to spend so much time on each account. Is that something you think about how much time are you spending on each one? You spend a lot of time at first and then you get really good at it. So when we first started, it was about two and a half years ago with video. We, I had this idea that I wanted to try it. It was really before a lot of people were using video a ton. So I had our sales team pick out 20 accounts. And of course they, I, is my fault. I did not give them any stipulations. And they're like, what about Walmart and Starbucks and list every other like large account in the world. So my fault. And so what we did then is we really like, I'm a big on hacking it. Like how can you figure out how to do something without spending money to prove it out first? So we did a ton of research. So the marketing team researched people we should outreach to at those companies and write scripts for the sales team then to use. And we just used the MacBook and recorded them and then uploaded them as unlisted videos on YouTube and did like a screen capture with an embed and the email that when they clicked on it, it took them to the YouTube video to watch. That took us like those 20 videos took us about a week to do because they were, I mean, like highly, highly personalized. And it took forever to get the 20 videos filmed because everyone kind of like overthinking it, wanted to start and stop and you know, all that stuff. Did that um, was a week including the research or? Yep. Oh, yeah, okay. And I think everyone was like a little skeptical, right? This is, I mean, this is a ton of work. So we sent them out like Friday afternoon, it was like 3.30. I was just like, just send them. I'm like ready to be done with this project. (laughs) And then we got meetings like over the weekend with big companies and everyone started going, your idea is not so crazy now. And I was like, I didn't think it was. So, you know, we went to like, well, how can we do this for a hundred people? And that took, we got faster at it. And then how can we, you know, then after that was successful, we bought technology. So we use Vidyard for all of our personalized video, which is easily integrated into like Chrome, which makes it easy for the, for anyone on the team to record a quick video. And then I just started focusing people on getting better at video. And what I mean by that is you don't need it to be perfect. You need it to be authentic. And so when you're authentic, you say, um, and you pause and you stumble across your words sometimes because you're doing it live. 
it doesn't have to be this perfect video. And after people got used to that and really started understanding that it was more about making a personal connection than it was about creating this like polished video that would be used for all time, which it won't be, right? It really changed the speed at which we could do it. And our team got better at, you know, originally we'd write scripts for all of them for sales or SDRs to use. And then we got to the point where we didn't need to. They could just look at the bullet points of the research that was in Salesforce and go and do it on the fly. So it takes time. I will tell you, I, when I hire for people, I tell them that video is a big part of our process. You have to be comfortable with it. If that turns you off, you are not going to be happy here because I, you're going to do a lot of video. I mean, it's not uncommon, you know, for SDRs on my team to do hundreds of videos a month and, you know, they could film 40 videos in less than an hour now, wow. not with any scripts or anything, just off, off the top of their head because they've gotten good at it. So their quick research will be something like having a quick browser their LinkedIn saying, hey, I saw you post about that and kind of making yourself really relevant to them. Is that right? Exactly. Is that any different now? Are the results the same and you're getting the same kind of feedback? I think it's just different now. I think what I would tell you, you know, as especially with COVID and everything that's happened is you have to be more creative, right? Yeah. What are ways that you can stand out in just a different way is helpful. I haven't seen people using more video. So it's not like this stick has like taken off and everyone's doing it now. That still stands out. But how can you just be really, really relatable right now? Because the last thing anyone wants is to talk to someone who looks like they have it all together when like the rest of the world is in like this organized chaos for an unforeseen amount of time. You know, <laughs> so the reality of it is, you know, like I'll give you an example. Like if I were to record a video to someone right now, um, and I noticed that they were a parent of school-aged children, the first thing I would probably say to them is, you know, like, hope hope virtual learning is going as well for you as it is for me, right? Like, yeah. like I'm a mom too, right? If your kids are asking you 4,000 questions a day about like how to get on a Zoom call, I get you. <laughs> so just those realities, I think is super important. And I think that's why when we outreach to people, yes, we have really creative ideas and video and direct mail and ads and things that we do. But all of it's about like, I don't want to talk to your company. I want to talk to you. And here's why I want to talk to you, which I think really resonates. And then also we really just try and be in a lot of places around them. So we'll hear all the time from prospects. Gosh, I see you guys everywhere. We're a scale up company. We're not everywhere. We've just been really smart about where we're at and doing it around the same time. So it feels like when you go to LinkedIn, when you go to Twitter, when you go to your email box, your voicemail or your mailbox event, we're there. So we've created this perception that we're huge and around you when in reality, we're just being really smart about our resources. I love that if you can create a brand kind of image without actually having that brand image by doing some really smart marketing. Must be kind of creepy for them though. Yeah, it's like, I always joke and say, good marketing is a fine line between creepy and cool and you gotta know how to walk it, right? There's things that you can do and it comes off like really, really cool. And there are times where you can like cross that line a little bit and it's like, hey, this is a little bit too far. When you turn up at the house. Yeah. So, so, that's, so that's kind of the first step, is it? Video, reach out. Well, advertising before and then and then video. And after that, we go into direct mail. After that, okay, cool. What kind of things do you use for direct mail? Oh, we so we do different concepts for every campaign that we run. And you know, the thing I would tell you is we're not trying to you know do one item that we can mass send to a lot of people. We are trying to do really creative concepts that you have never gotten in direct mail before, or you've never gotten at 
any trades you've ever been to before. So you're not going to see us send like pens or notebooks or any of that stuff. You're going to see us do things such as send you a money tree, which apparently is a real plant, which I did not know until like a couple years ago. Send you a money tree because we can help you grow your business, you know, or, you know, we're going to send you baseball cards because you're a sports team. And those baseball cards that are printed on baseball card paper and a foil wrapper with some big league chew gum highlight mobile use cases and talk about the, you know, like your player stats almost. That's or the, your, yeah. That, that's the one I heard you talk about on the other podcast. I think they're like baseball cards with use cases on them. What kind of information did you have on there? Yeah. So we basically kind of came up with this idea. It was an interesting kind of way it came about is we had noticed for the most part in a lot of the major league sporting teams that they were primarily men who were in their late 30s and 40s so they grew up during the 80s which meant they likely loved baseball trading baseball cards and big league chew gum so that's where the concept came from it's actually one of our cheapest direct mails that we've ever done and then we just started thinking of you know what are like five to six use cases that we could do that are specific to sporting venues so we came up with the use cases and that's kind of what the back was about so it was really about like what would be the you know what's the challenge how can we solve this what are like you know little metrics that could go around it and then we came up with like players for each of these and so like for instance we did one around like how can you turn your fans at home into fans that like come into the stadium right and so we kind of played up like this whole idea of like the couch potato fan right who watches you from home you know can you create an engaging experience for him or her to do at home and then you know what is that like when they come in into the stadium finally so we, that's really what we did it was not this you know crazy elaborate concept it didn't take a ton of money or a ton of time it was just really different and it drove an obscene amount of meetings for us really because what they heard what they saw was something they've never gotten before so yeah. how many times have you ever gotten baseball cards and big league chew and they kind of feel obliged do you think or were they just like that got my attention i'm gonna actually assess their value proposition they really felt like it got their attention and i think that was the first one where we heard from multiple people in different organizations i took what you sent me and i sent it to my entire sales team because i don't know why we don't do stuff like this and you know or this is like so creative and it's just how I've always been doing marketing is, you know, what can you do and how can you relate to that person in the company, industry, et cetera, in a different way that no one else is doing? How can you stand out? Because if you stand out and you have a good message and a good product, you're going to get their time. I think what a lot of people don't realize is they have like one of those three things that are really cool way to stand out, but their messaging is poor or like the actual product's not super useful or worst case, they're sending it to someone who can't really use it. Or you have a really great product, but you don't have creative ideas as to stand out. And even if your messaging is good, you're not breaking through the noise of all the tech that's out there today. So you got to really have all three. And if you can have all three, you can do things that are not expensive, that are just different. Like, you know, for beverages, we sent out, you know, a copper mule mug or logo on it. Anyone can do that. It's super easy. But then we created with a mixologist different drink recipes and tie those to mobile use cases. So like we created, you know, I think there's like six different drink recipes that you can make. And it lists out all the ingredients. And we talked about like, you know, this would be best drunk with like this type of use case. And it was just a fun, playful way of doing that. I mean, how many times does someone send you drink recipes that you can make at home? Never. So little things like that, I think were really fun. We also did, you know, we've done things like around Valentine's Day where we've sent out chocolates and did like actual Valentine cards. Just like little stuff. 
they must have been a bit annoyed to get a Valentine's card and then realize it wasn't for them, really. But we just sent chocolate. Everyone loves chocolate, so. True. Silver lining. It seems that the gist is like, as well, you're just being really creative and taking risks mm-hmm. with it. I think that's probably one of the hardest things to convince the rest of your team about. Exactly. And I, I always tell, and I've been this way since I can remember, I love crazy ideas. And I think if you create a culture of loving crazy ideas and really welcoming let's try anything because let's be honest, the world's digital. If we do something and it fails miserably, like an ad on the website or whatever, I can take it down in minutes, right? Even in direct mail, it's not like you're sending out thousands at a time, right? With this approach, we're sending out a couple of hundred. So if it fails, the world doesn't end. It's very different than when things are, you know, like when I started out and everything was print, was in print. And if it fails, like it literally failed and there was no way to get it back. So I think if you create a culture as a leader of, hey, like let's have crazy ideas. Like how can we do something that no one else has done before? And you ask that question. And it's a playoff, if you're familiar with the show West Wing, that was on years ago, but President Bartlett on that show used to say, what's next? I ask that to my team all the time, like, what's next? What are we doing next? And just having this like constant iteration, belief that you're never really done with something and that there's always a different or better way to do it. We just haven't thought of it yet. And it makes marketing really, really fun. Definitely. So how are you changing your strategy now that everyone's working from home and you can't really send stuff to their house? Yeah, we, yeah, we've really, I think, caused us to think a lot, especially once we realized this was going to be more of a, like a longer term situation. I think a lot of people probably like in the early to mid-March timeframe when COVID really started to take, you know, the world by storm, unfortunately, you know, we thought this is maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And I think now, you know, the reality is that we're in this situation for, you know, really, I would tell my team, like, let's plan that the world is like this for at least 18 more months. And if it's, if things get better faster and things go back to how they used to be great, it's a pleasant surprise. But if not, like, let's focus on this is, this is a new reality, which I think was, is really important because I've seen a lot of companies kind of almost end up paralyzed waiting for things to go back to normal or things they think they soon will or they could and so they don't adapt to like saying like okay nope this is just how it is I'm gonna pretend like it's like this forever and then when things change great so we've done a lot of things we have are not doing um, really anything with direct mail right now and I've seen a lot of other companies be really successful at sending out direct mail to people's homes by asking for their address I think for us that just feels like an invasion of privacy honestly to some extent so we've tried not to do stuff like that we're thinking about more creative ways so there's a place called Cameo where you can get like local local and like super well-known celebrities to record videos for you. So for instance, think about if you find someone and you find out like who their favorite baseball player is growing up and that person happens to be on Cameo, you can send over, you know, a script and have for 75 bucks you up or less even have them record a quick like one minute video that you can send them. That's highly personalized for with their favorite you know, sports player from when they were a kid. Just stuff like that that's totally different makes you stand out. And I think it just, it helps. People need some time to smile and laugh right now. So I think we're trying to find ways to make people smile and laugh. So being more punchy with our messaging, I think is a big thing that we're focused on right now. How can we be more disruptive that and really, really, really own what we believe in and not be afraid of that anymore, which, you know, is everything from the website to social media to our outbound outreaches. And then I think about, you know, for us too, just changing how we think about our go-to-market. And with COVID, I think a lot of companies had an opportunity to think about their business different, differently, whether that is, you know, do we have an office? Do we not? Is our product and our go-to-market make sense? Are there ways to accelerate what we're doing? For us, you know, we have been blessed because 
companies do to accelerate their digital efforts and our platform is built for that. So that's been really great to see more people taking advantage of our platform. But I also think it's helped us say, you know, we have thought about going to this product-led growth strategy, you know, by the end of 2020. And we significantly accelerated that and we'll be launching that or late summer of this year because there's just a really good need for it. So that's part of, you know, really how we thought about it. And then the other thing I'd add is, you know, our focus, especially in late March, early April, was around how can we help people? How can we help our current customers not worrying about the money and just worrying about how can we help you in your business? How can we help nonprofits? Because a lot of them, you know, really rely on galas and events to drive their fundraising. And, you know, all that stuff's been canceled. So we did a lot of that stuff really in Q2 just to be super helpful to people, which long-term it's going to pay dividends, right? People remember who helps them. 100%. And I think that for the team that I, you know, the team that have stayed around morale wise, it's super important to be a company that is caring and making outreach in the community. So you mentioned being punchy and, and, and working with your sales team. How is it exactly that you work together as a marketing and sales team on this account based stuff? Are they also reaching out to people separately of this campaign or do they know exactly who they're on board and they're targeting the same people? How does it work? Yeah, uh, we've really ebbed and flowed strategy for, you know, the last three years. So, you know, early on, I would say probably the first like two and a half years, I was at Lumivate very focused on, I would say more of a traditional approach, which is, you know, SDRs have always reported up through marketing, but, you know, we designed the accounts, the people, the SDRs do the outreach, and their goal is to book meetings for the sales team. Pretty quickly, you know, when I came on board, I implemented ABM, and then I, I really hate talking about marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads, because I think they're just such junk topics. And the reason why is at the end of the day, I can get you as many leads as you want. Leads are not hard. Mm -hmm. Good leads that convert to something, that's what's hard. And so we focus more on what we call qualified opportunities, which means like we actually got you a meeting with someone, the sales team took the meeting, and at the end of it, they go, that was a good use of my time. There's something there. Now there's something there might be in 30 days, in two weeks, or in a year from now, but there's a real opportunity there. So that's a qualified opportunity. And that's really what we focused on really the first two and a half years is how can we drive qualified opportunities? You know, and our conversion rate from meetings to qualified opportunities was about 90%. So we were very, very specific about who we went after and whether or not they fit our profile. And then we started shifting things around and doing something a little bit different. And part of that I think is really how people buy has changed. So if you look back, you know, prior to probably like a year ago, you know, even myself, I talked, you know, if I was interested in a platform, I talked to a sales rep. Today, if I'm interested in a platform, I'm looking at it at 10 o'clock at night because that's when I have a few minutes and I don't want to talk to someone. I just want to try it out and see if it does what I need it to do. And I think COVID accelerated that because so many more companies have went online and started offering digital things. Like I don't want to talk to someone, which is a challenging place to be in, right? For a sales organization is how can you stay relevant and how can you stay in front of people when they're kind of becoming more accustomed the self-service model. So really what we've been focusing on now is how do we think about our reps reaching out to target accounts and having more of a named account list with, you know, the biggest of the big players. And those are the ones that they're doing personal outreaches to. So when you reach out to, you know, the CMO or a VP of digital marketing at an enterprise company that's $40 billion in revenue, I have a senior account executive reaching out to you who's going to be able to tell, you know, has a decade of experience and is going to be able to talk to you about all the challenges you're facing and how we can help and have a really strategic conversation. That's very different than, you know, having an SDR reach out who's just really trying to get you interested 
interested in the product and get you to set a meeting. So that's been the shift that we've really been, I think, started on prior to COVID and have really accelerated with COVID is how can our sales team focus more on those longer, you know, longer cycle, more strategic accounts? And then how can we use something like product-led growth for everything else? That's really interesting. And I'm definitely on board with the product-led growth. So to go back to our steps of your ABM outreach, so we've got to, we've got through, so the initial advertising, the outreach through video by email, the direct mail, what's next for you? If you've had no response by this point. Yeah. So we always do, you know, obviously email. So I would say typically by our third or fourth outreach. So, you know, we've reached out to you via email, then video. If you haven't watched the video, we've sent you a follow-up. Then we've sent you an unboxing video about what you're going to get during, during direct mail. Then you get your direct mail and then we follow up and you still really aren't engaging. That's when we shift over to really just trying to be a thought leader and just a content provider. So we start sharing relevant content. So a lot of what we do for each industry is create content that's specific to that industry and the challenges they're facing in our space. So that's what we'll start sharing, which I think really helps people position us like we're trying to be helpful i'm not just trying to sell to you i'm not just trying to get a meeting from you even though yes i am so that's been really our shift and so those will have a couple of outreaches for then we move everyone over into industry specific nurture tracks that run for every two weeks for about two months and then they move over to like really our kind of like standard nurture tracks which is more general content that would apply to anyone would you ever create content specifically for one company like you know their challenge, you're going to write an article and then you're going to send it to them? Or is that too much? Yeah, I would say we've done it occasionally for some companies. I would say what we tend to do is like within like CPG, I think that's a good example. So consumer packaged goods has a lot of different avenues, right? They have beverages, they have food and candy, they have health and beauty. We might get really targeted at like, okay, what are like the five challenges health and beauty are facing today? And how can we write content specific to them? And that's stuff that we would do. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And does podcasting for you come into this? It does. We've taken, I think, a different approach to podcasting than I think other companies might take it. I don't try and drive leads with it. I don't try and generate sales out of it. Not, and not, I also... Not at all or like just... Not at all. Roundabout way, you know, like it's happening. Um, really not at all. Like those aren't metrics that we measure and or evaluate the success of the podcast on. Now, does that mean it can't happen? No, it definitely can. But really when we thought about why we started it and what the purpose of it was and how we how we know if it's successful. It wasn't about leads and it wasn't about sales. It was all about, you know, a couple of things. One, how do we better communicate our expertise? So how can we continue to be seen as thought leaders in the space that we're in? And then how can we position our brand? And like I said, we're really, you know, we're tech company in scale up mode with some of the biggest brands in the world. And that's what we did with the podcast, right? You know, we focused on who can we get that are the types of people we want to talk to at some of the biggest brands. And then when we promote it, we're saying Lumivate and Google. Limovate and Samsung, Limovate and MG Hotels, Choice Hotels, Campbell Soup, brands that everyone knows. And that's really what it's been about is how do we build our brand? Attaching yourselves to, to brands that everyone knows. Exactly. And then from that, we create a lot of great content that we use in the sales cycle, right? So, you know, it's really cool to be able to send another CMO, you know, the interview I did with the CMO of MGM Resorts and talk about in the two minutes of that interview that I think that would be most applicable to them. So that type of stuff is really compelling. It creates great content. And then also just honestly creates a perception, right? The people you surround yourself with are influence who you are and they influence how other people see you. Same thing with marketing efforts. You know, the brands you surround yourself with, the brands that you have webinars with, that you're on their podcast or they're on yours, people make assumptions based off that. And for us, 
you know, we were and we are with some of the biggest brands in the world and people make a lot of assumptions based on who we talk to. Well, you see, do you ever see inbound leads from like directly from that? Like I heard you on the podcast. We do occasionally. I think what we tend to see more of is a lot of like educational opportunities that come out of that. Like I heard you on this and you said this, can you share more about that? Right. Mm -hmm. Which drives for us, you know, more content that we create. We don't talk about ourselves on the podcast, which is a big, a big thing. So we never talk about Lumivate. The only time you would even know that it's a podcast is that it's on our website and our logos, like on, you know, our title card for, for the podcast, but we're not talking about what we do and who we are because it's, it's not about that. So there has to be kind of like, to some extent for an inbound lead to come in from the podcast, they have to make a lot of connections. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, no one's going to listen to your corporate podcast about you and your company, are they? So what's your biggest like success story on this podcast? Who have you had on and really enjoyed and how did you go about getting them on? Yeah. So this is, I think the best story of really around podcasting that I've heard. And part of the reason was because like, it's so simple. I don't know why more people don't do it. And it all started because I was like fever induced. So I and my team made what we call a dream brand list. So with the podcast, we made a list of dream brands that we would love to get on the podcast. Like at the end of a year, you know, if we can get a certain number of these brands on the show, we're, we'll consider that a huge success. And they're like, I mean, they're big brands, right? And one of them was Google. And specifically, we deliver all of our apps built on our platform as progressive web apps. And really the father of that technology who really came up with the technology, named it, et cetera, is Alex Russell. He is an engineering leader at Google. And so he was one of the people. And I was like, you know, if we can get him on the show within a year, like that's gonna be a huge win for us. And we launched the show right after, I think it was like right after Thanksgiving in 2018. And it was about a month later. It was like the last Friday that everyone was working before the holidays. And I went home because I wasn't feeling super great. And it turned out I had a fever. So, but I was doing podcast outreach like before the holidays. And so I'm just sitting in a recliner at home with a fever, just reaching out to people. And I thought, reach out to Alex Russell, which I probably wouldn't have done if I didn't have a 103 degree fever at the point. But I was like, I'm just going to send him a DM on Twitter. So I wrote a DM on Twitter. And because I had a fever, I was clearly not thinking well, because I probably otherwise would have overanalyzed it and not done it. And I just sent it to him and that was, you know, five, six o'clock at night. And then two hours later, which I had stopped working by this point, he sent me a DM back on Twitter. and was like, I'd love to. And so I show it to my husband and he, I was like, what does this say? And he goes, it's some guy named Alex Russell wants to be on your podcast. And I was like, like, are you sure that's what this says? That's when I realized you have to do is ask. And I think sometimes we think it's so hard to get to these big people because of who they are. And yeah, some of them are really hard, but if you are creative in your outreach, it's kind of like prospecting again, right? Creative in your outreach to them and you really tell them authentically why you want to have them on your show, you'll get a lot more yeses than you think. And that's how we've been able to get people like, you know, employee number one at Amazon Alexa on the show. That's how we've gotten the CMO of MGM, Res MGM Resorts. That's how we've gotten Samsung. That's how we've gotten Microsoft, Choice Hotels, Campbell Soup, Lowe's, AT&T. I mean, I can go on and on. And our podcast list has been a who's who. And it's literally just reaching out to them? Just reaching out to them. That's good. I mean, I have a similar experience with this podcast as well. It's like nearly no one says no you know it's something that people like to do I think especially marketers I guess you have that exactly and I think sometimes like our head we just get we just get so worried like oh I'll do it after I've had a couple more people on the show or I've had this or that and what we don't realize is all you have to do is ask 
and a no now doesn't mean a no forever. It's a not now. And I really try and keep that philosophy with everything that we do from a marketing perspective is anyone that tells me no on the podcast, like now's not a good time. I just ask them when it is a good time. Right. And then we, we continue to reach out and don't get me wrong. There are couple people that we've been, like, that I'd love to get on the podcast that has been real hard and I still haven't got on the show yet, but I'm determined to get on the show. Like the CMO of Burger King is a great example. I am obsessed with all of their marketing efforts. I think it's what they do on mobile from a marketing perspective is absolutely brilliant and uber creative. So I'm convinced I will get Fernando on the show at some point. That's cool. Yeah. Maybe you'll hear this. Probably not. How do you choose the topics that you go for? Is it more about the individual? Is it about solving a problem? Yeah, it's always about the individual. So I always reach out to them with an idea of what I want to talk to them about. And so it's not necessarily like in that first outreach, I don't say questions, but I say like, here are the like three or four things that I think you could be really great talking about. And here's why. And then, you know, as a follow up to that, I typically send questions a couple of days before. And I never ask the questions exactly how they're written. I never do it in the order. There's usually like 20 more questions that are on that sheet that are actually asked, but it helps people. I think, especially executives have just like a good frame of reference of like where you're wanting to take a conversation. And there are times where like we throw the whole list away. Like I was talking to someone at Salesforce and probably like five minutes into the conversation, he said something and it just like, we both latched onto it in the entire episode. What I thought it was going to be about, it was not about, and we went in a totally different direction. It was so much better. So it's a conversation, but I tend to give them like at least some context around like, okay, here's like the types of questions I'm likely going to ask you, especially if they're larger, a lot of times they have to get PR approval on the questions before Mm -hmm. they can be interviewed. So just having that process really helps. What kind of companies typically will have that sort of PR sort of like internal barrier to what they can answer? Yeah. So I would say usually ones that are publicly traded, at least in the United States, tend to be ones that have that barrier because there are, and it depends on who it is. If that person is an authorized person to speak on behalf of the company, you typically don't need to get that approved. But if they're not someone that's regularly speaking or regularly being interviewed, a lot of times they'll have to go run those questions through PR to do it. I've never had anyone ask to listen to an episode first or anything like that because I don't I don't treat it like it's you can't control what's in it. It's a conversation just like you would have with like a reporter or whoever. But I do allow them to see questions ahead of time. But like I said, probably 75% of the conversation is not in those questions because it, it's what happens naturally. You say something and I latch onto it and then we go a different direction or, I thought you would be really interesting talking about these four things and we get into it. It's not very exciting. So I'm trying, you know, but then you seem to like light up about this other thing. So we start talking about that. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the How The Fuck podcast. It's been actually amazing having you on. You've shared so many tips. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a good rest of your night. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. That was crazy. I've made a really detailed summary about... Uh, all the steps that were were talked about during this interview on uh, thefuck.com. So, like, come over and check it out. Um, and I have a big favour for everyone uh, who's got this far. Please, can you go and leave me a review? Wherever it is that you listen to this podcast, just go and, like, drop a review. Let me know what you think. Um, it'll be really useful for me. Thank you so much. See you next week.